0: Well, let's jump into our study in the book of Genesis. I have so enjoyed the last several weeks as we've looked at uh, the amazing account of creation. Uh, We looked at the beautiful institution of marriage, and we saw the tragic fall of mankind into disobedience, into sin. And today, we're going to look at the aftermath of that. We're going to look at the curse of sin. Now, I could do a whole series on just the curse of sin. There's a lot to cover when it comes to the curse. But we're gonna, we're gonna look at this account today. And this couple that we know as Adam and Eve. They had it made. You know, they'd been made in the image of God. And what went along with being made in the image of God is they were made with a will. And what went along with having a will is the ability to choose to do wrong. And what goes along with that, wrongdoing are consequences. There are always consequences for making bad decisions. You know that if you've ever eaten a Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> but when God created man, he did so in his sovereignty. Some people struggle with it. Why are there consequences for sin? If God loves us, why doesn't he just you know, wipe away the consequences like that? Why does there have to be uh, some sort of satisfaction of justice? Well, it's, it goes to the character of God. God is He is a just God. He is justice. It's part of his essential attributes. And so for God not to demand justice for wrongdoing would mean that God would stop being God. And so there are always consequences for bad actions, for evil. Uh, Whenever you go to stab somebody, God does not divinely turn your knife into a noodle. All right? When you shoot somebody, he doesn't just make those bullets into bubbles. All right? When you curse, he doesn't turn your bad words into blessings. And so there are realities associated with wrongdoing and he says I'm gonna give you the privilege man to do right or to do wrong but if you do wrong there will be consequences and you must live or die with those consequences and so we are seeing in this text today the consequences of Adam and Eve's choices and they have ramifications for the rest of us and we gotta start in the middle or excuse me in the in the immediate aftermath Of their fall into sin. So, we're gonna look at these consequences and they're gonna break down according to the parties involved in the story. There are gonna be some that deal with man in general, there are gonna be some that deal with the individuals who made the choices, there are gonna be some that deal with the tempter himself. All right, so let's begin to look at this and we're gonna look first at the consequences for humanity. For humanity. And the first thing that we see in your notes is that there is a sense of guilt. And this is gonna be innate in mankind moving forward because in verse seven, where we begin, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And what you're seeing right here in this book of beginnings is you're seeing the very first act of human religion. They hid their sin. That is the first act of human religion. At this point, uh, their sin has nothing to do with nakedness, but that is what they instinctively seek to cover. Being naked wasn't their sin, but now because of sin, they knew shame. So they had an awareness of their sinful state, and the only thing that they instinctively knew how to do was just cover themselves. And so that is why uh, you have shame today. That is why we, we want to, to try to cover ourselves from gazing eyes. That is what we do. It's just, it's just innate in mankind. All right? I don't know if this ever happened to you before, but one time I got out of the shower, I thought I was alone in the bathroom, I looked over, and there's my dog sitting right there. And I immediately grabbed a towel and covered up. And I, and I thought, well, how silly. He's always naked. You know? But this is where this comes from. It comes from this innate awareness of our own guilt. And so they hide because they felt guilty and they just sought to cover up. You know, uh, they, they thought, well, if if God if I can't see God, then God can't see me. And so I'm going to hide, and I'm going to cover myself. Now, we have graduated from pathetic little fig leaves, which is their choice of covering, and we've moved on to more sophisticated things. And we like to cover ourselves with uh, you know religious things. We come to church every Sunday to cover up what we're truly like all throughout the week. We can quote scripture like it's our job. We sing all the songs. We know all the words. We go through all the motions. God can see through it all. He can see through it all. And that leads us to the next consequence. They not only have a sense of guilt, they have a, in your notes, a loss of fellowship with God. It says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh Elohim. He is a holy God, but he is a personal God. And they heard him walking in the garden, it says, in the cool of the day. Now you may marvel at that phrase. God is walking in the garden? God's just, he's just taking a stroll? I didn't know God did that. Well, this is what I believe is called a theophany. God is manifesting himself in such a way that it, is, it appears to be earthly. It appears to be physical, corporeal. Why? So that he could relate to man, so that man had a familiarity. He would commune with Adam uh, in this way. He would walk with him in a physical appearance. Now, this is not flesh and blood. This is not the incarnation that's going to happen with Jesus much, much later. But he is appearing in this form so that there could be a very intimate connection between God and man. After the fall, this would would not be. There would come a point where man would no longer interact with God in this way. In fact, after chapter 4, we don't see that anymore. And from that moment forward, the only way God and man would connect would be Uh, through prayer. And we connect with this invisible presence of God. And so, really, prayer is an aspect or an outcome of the fall, of the curse. You say, prayer is a curse? That seems seems strange to say, doesn't it? Well, it it does sound strange to say, but it is in the sense that once upon a time we could meet face-to-face with God. We're there in the flesh with him. We're looking upon him. And now we can't. Now we must meet with him via prayer, which is sweet, but it is not as intimate as Adam had it in the beginning. Now, one day, we will meet with him face to face. Amen? You believe that? He's coming back, and we will be able to look upon him uh, in the incarnated form of Jesus Christ, and we will see him face to face. But here is the final time they would engage with him one on one, and God comes looking for them, and it's in the cool of the day, which means this is toward the evening. And it says, "And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They were hiding from God. How silly to hide from God! Uh, you ever play hide and seek with a very, very young child? You know, you never, you never lost sight of them. You always knew where they were, but then you, you find them. You know, and what are they doing? <laughs> They're doing that because in their in their immature state of mind, if they can't see you, you can't see them. And how silly. And yet, these two are brand new, you know? But as, as much as we would judge that silliness, today we do the same thing. We try to immerse ourselves in all sorts of things to hide from God. We immerse ourselves in psychology. We immerse ourselves in philosophy. You want to hide? Uh, a lot of people find no better way to hide than a big old church. And they come to a great big church and they get lost, they think. They get in the middle of the sea of faces, but God hasn't lost sight of them whatsoever. And notice where they're hiding in our text. They're hiding, it says, among the trees of the garden. The trees of the garden. Who made those trees? God did. Why? For the blessing and benefit of the man. Those trees were a blessing. There was sustenance provided both by those trees. And so they are hiding from God. They want to separate from God, but they are still immersed in his blessing. And this is what people today do. They hide from God. They reject him, but they continue to enjoy his blessings. And they, they deny him, they reject him, they say, I don't need him, but they put on clothing that is made from the fibers of plants that he created on day three. And they put on leather shoes that come from animals that he made on day five. And they they enjoy the sunshine that he made, uh, the warmth of that sun created on day four. And they eat meals comprised of vegetables that he made on day three and protein he made on day four. And even in our sin, we still enjoy the blessings of God. But for many, one day they're going to wake up in hell and they're going to realize they have rejected God, but they're no longer surrounded by blessings. The trees of Eden are far from the flames of hell. And so they hide, but in verse 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, all right? He calls to him. Uh Uh-oh, there's a confrontation. God knows they're in there. And he calls to him. And what you're seeing here in this book of beginnings is the first act of mercy. Now, we don't think of confrontation as a fun thing. None of us like it. You remember when you were young and, and you got caught. By your parents doing something you weren't supposed to do. That was not an enjoyable experience for you. Or when a teacher busted you in class or something, you had to go to the principal's office. Not fun. Let me tell you, in this instance, it's an act of mercy. Did God have to call to Adam? No. No, he made the ramifications of disobedience quite clear. Don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. He would made it clear. There did not need to be any confrontation. We could have gone straight to punishment. This could have been like that. There was a movie, a student film, it was a short film back in the late 60s, black and white, this crudely animated film called Bambi Meets Godzilla. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You can find it on YouTube. It opens and there's this crudely drawn deer, you know, Bambi is, is in a meadow and uh, just a lion sketch and it's animated and you hear, you know, the music of nature. And Bambi's in a meadow just eating, and there's a bee buzzing, and there's flowers, and there's the title, Bambi Meets Godzilla, and the credits roll, and it looks like the proper opening to a movie. And the credits are finished, and now the movie will begin. And then out of nowhere, wham, comes a big old Godzilla foot right down on Bambi. The end. whole movie's like 30 seconds long. It's just a student film, you know? That's what this could have been. This could have been that. This could have just been Adam gets squashed. I mean, like just in a heartbeat, God would have been within his rights. He told him what to expect, but God doesn't do that. There is an act of mercy right here. Confrontation is merciful on the part of God. Uh, I was associated with the church years ago. I left that church. I was at another church, and I heard that something had transpired uh, back at that other ministry. The, The youth pastor had been arrested for soliciting a prostitute. Uh, it turned out he was an undercover police officer. And so he was arrested. His mugshot was plastered everywhere. Obviously, it had, had, had uh, uh, consequences for the church. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of heartache. Uh, one of the girls that served under him in that ministry called me. She was distraught. She just couldn't believe it. She said, this is the worst. This is just the worst thing that possibly could have happened. And I said, I understand your pain. I understand why you're hurt. But this is not the worst thing that could have happened. The worst thing that could have happened is he could have kept living that lifestyle unknown to everybody. God could have left him in his darkness and he would have continued to devolve and decline morally. But God was merciful. He brought it into the light. Now there can be healing. This is the act of God that is merciful. He allows for healing to take place. And so God does not just dispatch Adam. He calls to him and he says, where are you? Where are you? Now, this is a rhetorical question. God knows full well where he is. God knows everything. What he's doing here, this is the third, uh, excuse me, the second question that we see asked in the book of Genesis. The first question we saw last week, right? Satan, the serpent, says to Eve, "Did God actually say you shall not eat from any of the trees of the garden?" Purpose of that first question, never had been a question before then. The purpose was to undermine God's word. This is the second question asked, where are you? This is that loving father calling to the man to present himself, step forward, my son. There's gonna be a third question that we'll read in just a bit. He's gonna say, after they talk about why they were hiding, he's gonna say, who told you you were naked? And that question will be, a a request for them to come clean? What is it that you have done that has brought you to this awareness? So those are the first three questions in your Bible right here. And here's what Adam does in response to that question, where are you? He comes forward and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, verse 10, and I was afraid. I was afraid. And here's another first for us. We've seen the first act of human religion. We've seen the first act of mercy. We've seen the first... Few questions ever asked. And here we see the first reference to fear in your Bible. Fear. Fear was not a part of the created order. It's unnatural. It's unnatural. Fear like this. And it comes from the realization of guilt. Man was never to know guilt. And if man had never known guilt, there would not be fear. Uh, Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba! Father, Abba, means daddy. It's it's an intimate term that a little child would refer to their father. There's to be that intimacy. My children are not afraid of me. My little seven-year-old is not afraid of me. There's to be that kind of relationship there. We're not to fall back into that. Now, we we have a healthy respect and awe and fear of God, fear the one who can uh, uh, destroy both body and soul in hell, we are told in Scripture, but that kind of fear comes from the reality of sin. And so we're not to know that fear originally. But look what happens uh, as he steps forward. Notice what he's most aware of. He says, I was afraid, it goes on, because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam's clearly aware of his sin. He's aware of his guilt. But, but the sin itself is not prompting remorse in Adam. He is not contrite here. He is, he's embarrassed. And he's afraid of what? Of the consequences. So what is he really what is he really upset about? He's sorry he got caught. All right. This is not a godly sorrow. This is a worldly sorrow. He's less ashamed of his guilt and more ashamed of the repercussions. And this is us. We we are not truly broken when we get busted. We don't respond to the mercy of getting busted. We, we, we cower back. We're, we're perturbed that this has, has been uncovered, this sin. He's mortified. And God then responds with another question. As I alluded to before, verse 11, he said, Who told you you were naked? How did you know you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Hmm? And what we see next, another consequence for humanity... There is, in your notes, a broken fellowship with one another. Here's what transpires. Watch this. Adam begins to blame his environment. His newly fallen brain now starts regurgitating excuses and rationales for why he's in the situation he's in. Verse 12, the man said, that woman that that, that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and and I ate. Lord, it's her. It's the woman. It's, it's, the, she did it. I didn't do it. She did it. That woman that you gave me. See, now he's shifting blame to God. Not too bright. Not too bright. He's like, God, I was so happy being single. I had it made. I was content. You forced her on me. I wasn't looking for a relationship. You don't know how hard it is to be married. God, you're not married. You don't know. It's so much pressure. I've got I've to gotta make her happy. And, and I trusted her. She said we should do this, and I trusted her because you gave her to me. This is all your fault, really. You see? Do people absolve themselves of blame today? Yeah. We do it all the time. Psychology has taught us to do this, right? Freud it's not really your fault, you know? Nothing is your fault. It, 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 it happened when you were a baby, you see. There was something that happened to you that made you like this. It was, it was your parents, it was your grandparents, it was poor putty training in the formative years. I mean, it's any number of things. It's your economic status, it's your social status, it's the government. And then in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Now this is not because God's like, aha, uh-huh, good point, Adam, hey, Eve, no. No, he knows. He's just, it's equal opportunity blame here. They're both guilty. And so he says, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, that serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's the serpent, you see. So the blame shifting goes on, goes on and on and on, you know? This is the first instance in world history of the devil made me do it. Right here. And so this is humanity, and this is what we do. Nothing has changed from this moment forward. We we don't naturally accept blame. And so those are the consequences for humanity at the outset here. And now we're going to look at the consequences for the serpent. For the serpent. It says in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now what's interesting is he's talking to this serpent, and he is putting him in the category of livestock and beasts of the field. And so what that tells us is at this, at this moment, in this verse right here, at this portion of the verse, he is not addressing the spiritual being of Satan. He is addressing the physical form of this creature. This serpent. This was an actual creature, as we talked about last week. Hebrew word is nakash. Nachash. It means reptile. Alright, this was a literal animal from the garden, familiar to Eve, that was indwelled, inhabited, possessed by Satan to deceive her. And so God is addressing the actual literal form of the serpent. And he says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so what he's doing here in your notes is he is making this creature a symbol of the danger of sin. He will evermore be a symbol of this moment right here and the tragedy and the danger, the harm that can be caused by sin. I saw an ad for a college course. There's a college that offers free courses online. Uh, If you sign up for them, there's this one course. It's Genesis as Literature. And the professor is one of these typical academic-looking guys. He's got the trendy glasses and the ponytail and the beard, and he's he's saying, he's asking questions about this uh, literary nature of Genesis. He says, "Why is it, why is it that uh, serpents are cursed to crawl on their belly when that's what they already do?" You know. And as I told you last week, this nakash does not mean snake. It just means reptile, and I believe. When that deception happened, this creature was upright. I don't believe he was on his belly slithering as a snake as we think of snakes today because that curse came after the fall. And so I believe in its original form, this creature walked and was beautiful to God. The indication is that, uh, not to God, but to Eve. Uh, The indication is that she didn't freak out when she engaged with it. It was very uh, beautiful, must have been very appealing to her. There are many dangerous creatures today that are beautiful. All right? But this was this was something that God commanded its its creaturely form from that moment forward it would evermore crawl on its belly. Now you might say why curse the animal? Is it the animal's fault? Surely the animal was innocent if he was just possessed by Satan. Why would you curse the creature? Well, you know, if you read scripture every time you see an animal that is a vehicle for harm to mankind, all throughout the Old Testament, the law Dictates that they be exterminated. If an ox gores a person, the ox must be put to death according to the law. And so you see that in scripture, and here is the precedent for that. But what God is doing is he's putting before mankind an image, a representation of who Satan is. And so whenever we see a snake, there's fear that comes through this. This is true of most cultures. Almost all cultures attach some sort of mysticism to snakes. And you see this historically. And there is something innately frightening about a serpent. A baby rattlesnake can kill you 10 minutes after it's born, a python can swallow you whole. All right? Uh, you know, uh, when they kill, when snakes consume their prey, their face, there's something mesmerizing about it. It's like it's paralyzed, there's no expression there. It's just haunting. And that curse is never reversed. This snake will always have this form. It will always crawl on its belly. You say, what about in the kingdom when we're not in danger of any animals? And we, you know, uh, we may, we may uh, cavort with whatever, uh, the lion and the lamb and all of that. Well, Isaiah says of that time in chapter 65, verse 25, "...the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust, dust shall be the serpent's food." He will not consume prey any longer. He will consume dust, but it will be dust because he will continue to crawl on his belly. This curse does not get reversed. We see that nowhere. And the serpent uh, continues to represent a threat to man. And Jesus refers to Pharisees as a brood of vipers. There's a reason. When Paul, at the end of his ministry, is in Malta and he is gathering sticks for the fire and a viper attaches to his hand, those around him, they're like, oh, he's done. God has judged him because the serpent is a representative of judgment, of God. But then what happens? Paul just shakes that snake into the fire. And that's a picture. Because one day, just as Paul was God's anointed in that time, God's eternally anointed son, Jesus Christ, will cast the serpent of old into the lake of fire. Amen? So we move on. This is not simply a curse on the serpent. God will deal with the one possessing that serpent. So here are the consequences for Satan. He's going to speak now to his once greatest angelic creation. And in verse 15, he goes on to say, I will put enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. All right? Satan's plan was I'm going to go after God's new favorite greatest creation, what I used to be. And I'm going to go after them, and I'm going to deceive them, and I'm going to corrupt them, and they're going to be like me. And I'm going to steal what God loves the most, and I'm going to make it follow me. And I will have dominion over it. They will be mine. That's his desire. But God curses that. And he He says... Here's what's going to happen in your notes. There's going to be hostility between unrighteous and righteous. You're not going to get all of them. What you've done has ramifications for them. But I'm going to make it where they're not all going to be yours. You see, God tells Satan, you wanted to control, manipulate mankind? Guess what? There is coming someone through the lineage of man who is not going to cooperate with you. He is going to throw a wrench into your plan. There is a new plan, and that plan is already underway, bud. You've already been defeated. You just don't know it yet. And there's going to be enmity between Satan's offspring and the offspring of the woman. Now, this verse is what scholars call the proto-evangelium. That is a Latin phrase, proto-evangelium. You know what it means? It means first gospel. First gospel. If anybody ever asks you, where's the gospel appear for the first time in Scripture? It's not Matthew. It's Genesis 3.15. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus... Dies for our sins according to scripture And rises again according to the scripture That's what Paul says is the gospel And within that there is the understanding That that death of Christ Is because of the sinful state of man That we need a payment We need a sacrifice On our behalf Okay And all of that is found in this verse Genesis three fifteen. How so? You've got two offspring described. Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. Question, who is the offspring of Satan? Who is that? You say, I didn't even know he was married. Well, here's what Jesus said in John 8 to those Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You who rebel against me, you're of your father, the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Jesus rhymed there, sinned from the beginning, all right? Now, who is the seed of Satan? It's, it's, it's unredeemed man. It's anybody who has ever sinned, who has ever operated independent of God. You, in your original sinful state, before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were a child of the devil. Did you know that? That is how we come into this world. When you come to faith in Christ, that changes. But naturally, we are all children of the devil. A a child looks like their parent. They bear similar traits. And the common trait between the offspring of Satan and Satan himself is this. I will be like God. God's not going to tell me what to do. And so we're children of the devil. Now, who is the offspring of the woman in this verse right here? Well, we are told that this offspring, it goes on to say that whoever he is, what's is he going to do? It says, he shall bruise your head. Serpent. This offspring of the woman will bruise your head. The NIV says he will crush your head. I like that. He's going to crush your head. Who's that? Well, there's this guy in the New Testament, you see. And of this guy, it says in John 14 30, he says, the ruler of this world's coming, he has no claim on me. In John 12, 31, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? That's Satan. This guy's gonna cast him out. In Colossians, it says of this, this individual, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. And 1 John 3 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of The devil. There is one person that can be described as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's gonna escape a sin nature by being born of a virgin, God coming down, uniting with man, and, uh, and, and he will live a perfect life, and he will go to a perfect uh, sacrifice on our behalf. And those who come to him and trust in that sacrifice by faith they become his offspring. The children of the devil put their faith in the offspring of the woman who came from God, and now those children become the offspring of Christ. You see what I'm saying? And so these two offsprings will be at odds with one another. Satan is not going to have what he wanted. He will not control all of mankind. And I should tell you that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, but... You're going, to be, you're going to get a piece of that action as well. Because in Romans 16, 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, there was, a, there was a victory that has already happened through Christ, and there will be a final victory, a far fulfillment of that victory, and you're going to be there for it. And then in our text in Genesis, he goes on to say that he will crush the serpent's head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his Heal. And so all of this is to say, in your notes, that for this, this devil, there will be an ultimate death blow through the cross. And it's going to be through the cross. His, his victory will not come in some other means. It will come through Calvary. He will crush the, the serpent's head at Calvary, but the serpent will strike his heel. He will strike his heel, meaning this victory will come at a price. There will be a price, Okay, A mortal wound will be inflicted on the seed of the woman. His heel will be struck. Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross, he hung there, there's a nail in either hand and there's one more nail. They would put one foot on top of the other of the crucified man, that spike would go through the top of that foot, go all the way through the back of the heel into the next foot and through that heel and affix the crucified man to the beam. And so literally, there was a heel wound on Christ as he hung and he paid the debt for our sin there at Calvary. And so this moment, this event at Golgotha comprised of victory over Satan at the cost of the life, the earthly life of Christ. And so he would die for our sin, but there would be defeat for Satan and that is the consequence for the devil. And now we move on and we see some specific consequences for the the two guilty human beings in specific. And not only specific consequences for them, but for everyone that they represent. And first we're gonna look at consequences regarding Eve. So these are consequences through Eve for women in general, all right? So this is how it affects the ladies. Now I thought about going through this section from behind that plexiglass shield right over there. But I thought, no, these are godly women, and they wouldn't take out their anger on me. So I'm going to just trust in the Lord on that, okay? I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. You got my word on that, okay? So here's what it says in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And so this aspect of the curse regarding women, the first aspect is maternal. It's maternal, and there will be, it says, pain in childbirth. Now, some of you ladies, you know what I'm talking about. You've had babies, there was pain. You experienced that pain. You know where that came from? Started right here. It originated with this moment, the fall. Every time you bring forth a child, Uh, Part of the curse is that there would be a reminder of the moment in human history where where man sinned. And God's command in in chapter 1 to Adam and Eve was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? That mandate had no expectation of pain. There was never going to be childbirth. Can you imagine that? No pain in childbirth. That was God's original design. If you had a baby... You know, you go into labor and baby's out, you move on with life, nothing, no muss, no fuss, all right? But here we've got the ramifications of the fall. And the words used here for pain and for childbirth, they render as sorrow and as conceptions. That is the actual word used, not childbirth as we think of it, but... Conceptions. Now, conceptions lead to pregnancy, which leads to delivery, which has pain. And so, in the long run, it's the same outcome here. But what this literally means is because of sin, God would, speaking literally from from the words used exegetically here, he would multiply the potential number of pregnancies over the course of the life of a woman. All right? And if you think about that, the command was be fruitful, fill the earth. Mankind did not have a limited lifespan in those days, and so it would have not taken that long for man to fill the earth. And so there would not be the need for as many pregnancies to to multiply to that point. Now man's days are going to be numbered over time. And so more pregnancies will be required in order to fill the earth. So that is part of this, the ramifications of this. And so he says, I will multiply your sorrow that is associated with multiple pregnancies. Now, pregnancies are a thing to celebrate. It's a joyous occasion. Somebody says, we're expecting, everybody throws a party. That's a beautiful thing. But it's, it's, it's certainly true that pregnancies carry hardship. They, there is difficulty associated with it, as you ladies know, or so I'm told, okay? Speaking honestly. And pregnancy can be difficult. Delivery can be difficult. Sometimes it, it can be tragic if there's loss of life. And then you've got, after that, there are postpartum ramifications for some women that deal with, with those. That all of that is a product of the fall. And, you know, raising the kid is no picnic either, right? And so there is a maternal aspect, but not only that, there's a marital aspect in your notes. And what this means is that chemistry is now complicated between man and woman. And so here we've got the origin of the battle of the sexes. It dates to Genesis 3. Prior to the fall, question, was there such a thing before the fall as submission in marriage? Answer, yes. Was it mandated? No. It did not need to be. There was a natural order. That was apparent. God was above everything. He creates, and his greatest creation is man. Adam is alone. He is put in authority over creation, but to complete Adam, God creates from Adam woman. And so there's a natural order. God is over Adam. Adam is over all creation. The woman is over creation, but is in submission to Adam from whom she came. God knew uh, where woman came from. Adam knew where woman came from. Woman knew where she came from. And so all of this was understood. But post fall, we've got a different vibe here. Something has changed. Before the fall, Adam operated in his responsibility. As oversight, appropriately, he knew, I am to love her. I am to cherish her. After the fall, we've got blaming. We've got demanding. We've got maligning. And so you're going to have submission after the fall, but it's, it's not what it was before the fall. It came easily at first. It's a struggle now. And God says to the woman, these are his words, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Now if you have another version like the NIV or something it, it reads like this your desire will be for your husband. Now we men like the sound of that better. Your desire will be for your husband as though she just can't control herself thinking about thinking about the man. As not what it means. The word desire I like the laughter. The word desire is the Hebrew word teshuka. Teshuka, you see it in the next chapter. God says to Cain, Cain, son, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. And the word means, teshuka means, it will devour you. It will devour you. This woman, God says, you are going to want to eat your husband alive. Now, I don't know if you ladies can relate to that. I bet you can, and with good reason, from time to time. There are days you're just like, you're, you're ready to just unload on this guy. But it's, he goes on to say, your desire, you're going to want to kill this guy, but he says, he shall rule over you. And the prophesying here is that there will be an innate desire in the wife to not submit to the man, to not respect authority. Why, why would she not want to submit to this man? Because even though God has given authority to the husband in marriage, that husband can be a knucklehead. Amen. Amen, <laughs> Amen or oh me, right? And so that is a product of the fall. But the order remains. What God designed worked perfectly. The design is still there, but the subjects are flawed. And so now you've got two imperfect people operating within a perfect design. And so the man is still God's appointed authority, but he's fallen, he's imperfect. The woman is still operating as God intended for her to operate, but she's imperfect, she's fallen, and it's hard for her to follow somebody who is also fallen and imperfect. But that system is still in place. And so this command is that two imperfect people need to navigate what God has set in motion in an imperfect world. So now we move on from the woman to the man. And some of the ladies are like, about time. Here we go. These are the consequences through Adam. Through Adam, and this is for the earth in general, okay? Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. This is God saying, all right, Adam, you have been irresponsible. I told you. I told you not to eat of the tree. You were there. I commanded you directly. She was not even created yet. This is on you, okay? It has ramifications for her, She's guilty too, but I told you, and you did what your wife said. And so the curse will come through this funnel, this man. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And what this means in your notes is that all nature is now cursed. All nature is cursed. The creation is now tainted. It's not perfect like it was. Once, there was the bounty of a branch. Adam could just reach out, take sustenance from a branch. There was, there was very little difficulty in that. God provided for everything that they needed no longer. Romans 8, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. All of creation lives in decay right now. Everything dies. Plants wither. Creeks dry up. Soil erodes. Stars burn out. Okay? Everything is in decline. Once God created it, he sustained it, he upheld it. Now, after the fall, he's drawn back his hand. Not so much so that the earth will just incinerate. He still holds it together, but he draws it back enough to now there is a decay. There is a bondage there. Uh, Things are not getting better. They are getting worse. There is what scientists call entropy, second law of thermodynamics. Everything declines. Why? Sin. Sin. He says, in pain you shall eat of it, the earth, all the days of your life. Okay, I'm not just going to provide food for you like I once did. Okay, he says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. So in your notes, this is work made difficult. Work is made di- Now, work is not the curse. There was already work. God commanded Adam to, to till the garden, tend the garden. But it was easier then. Adam was supernatural. The earth was compliant. It was endlessly enjoyable, it was fascinating, it was satisfying, now it will be difficult, it will often be unfulfilling. The earth is not gonna give you what you want when you want it, you're gonna have to really sweat, you're gonna have to work for it. Uh, and, and work wears out a body, now we enjoy work, I enjoy work, I like mowing my lawn, I like working in the garden, I like doing all those things, but it, it takes a toll on the body, you know, when you bend over at my age and you hear that creak, you're like, man, and over time this wears you out. And he says in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. The word for face originally was nose. By the sweat of your nose. You ever sweat and just drips off the end of your nose? (laughs) Nothing more humiliating than when somebody comes up and you're working outside and you got sweat dripping off the end of your nose. What a contrast. When, When Adam was created, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And it's this majestic moment where through the nose of Adam, eternality entered. And now, pathetic, demeaning sweat is dripping off that same nose. It's just a a crazy contrast because of the curse. And his body will begin to wear out. And over time, it will lead to death. In your notes, there will be eventual physical death. Romans says through Uh, One man's sin entered the world, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. You say, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there. Well, the Bible says you were. That you sinned in Adam, that he was the head of the race, that he is representative for all mankind who would ever come. Yeah, but I wasn't there. If you were, you would have done the same thing. Adam represented all of us. And he says that you'll sweat till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. And now we move out of these consequences, thank the Lord, and we move into the covering. There is to be a covering. And in verse 20, the man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Incidentally, this is the first time we learned her name. We know of her as Eve, we've referred to her as Eve, but we don't see her name until right here, verse 20. And he calls her Eve. And the word in Hebrew is chava. Chava. It means life. Okay? There is life there. And Adam calls her the mother of all living. The mother of all living. And you want to know something? This is an act of faith on the part of Adam he knows, he believes that she will produce life, that life will come from her. And his naming of her is a testimony to his faith in that fact. Why does he have faith in that? Because he heard God say to the serpent that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman will crush your head. And so Adam is taking God once again at his word. What do we call that? We call that and in light of Adam's faith, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so what we see happening here is monumental. This is setting a precedence, a precedent. You've got some animals. God takes some animals, and those animals die. Their blood is shed by who? By God. And He covers that forlorn couple who once tried to cover their sin with their own pathetic handiwork. And God says, that won't do. Those silly fig leaves, they're not gonna cut it. You're gonna need my standard. And he makes for them a covering. And there is involved in that covering the shedding of blood. You see where I'm going with this? This is a precedent. Throughout the Old Testament, you're gonna see a sacrificial system And in your notes, only faith and the shedding of blood overcome sin. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no remission of sin. The Hebrew sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament, you're gonna see blood sacrifice. And it it is for the covering, the forgiveness, the atoning of sin. And it's gonna be a picture that will point ahead to the one whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it will be by his blood that we will be covered. And there will be a permanent covering. But this is the very first picture of that. And in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Godhead, in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat. Remember, there's two trees. You got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You got the tree of life. He will take of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he is taken and he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, those, those warrior angels and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why would God not allow them to partake of the tree of life? We've got another act of mercy here. For you see, in that sinful state that they were now in because of disobedience, were they to eat of that tree and have eternal life, they would be eternally in their sinful state. And that would be abhorrent to God. And that would be a judgment on man. And so, not wanting them to be cursed forever, he banishes them from the garden. This first Adam, who brought judgment through his action. You know, Scripture speaks of two Adams. Did you know that? There are two. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five. thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam, my friends, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the last Adam. He's like the first Adam in that he came to earth perfect but they had a very different outcome. And there are four things that the first Adam got, as we've seen, what did he get? He got sorrow, he got pain, he got sweat, and he got death. Sorrow, pain, sweat, death. Well, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he's called a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He knew intense pain because he went to the cross on our behalf. He bore the cat of nine tails. He took the nails. He took the spear. He had that crown of thorns jammed down on his brow. He sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane as he spoke to his father, Lord, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Your will be done. And finally, he tasted death, the reality of Adam's sin, and he having given up his life, was laid in a dusty grave. He returned, or he didn't return because he didn't come from dust, but he went to the dust. But he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there. You are born of the first Adam. But it is God's will that you be born again of the second Adam. And therefore this Adam will lift the curse inflicted upon us uh, that that we embrace by our own sin. And he destroys it, and he crushes the serpent's head. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory. As we read the magnificence of your text today, God, we see the unfolding plan of redemption. It strikes me that in the immediacy of Satan's plan, you have a plan. And Lord, you knew, you always knew that you would redeem us and that it would bring glory to you. And it is my prayer that this reality would be acknowledged by everyone who hears it. That the hearing of your word would bring an awareness of the reality of sin and an awareness of our own personal obligation, our own personal responsibility in that sin, but also an awareness of the solution for that sin. And may that solution in the form of Jesus Christ be embraced by all, by faith, that they might know you, that they might know victory through you and walk with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.